Thank you, Sam, for leading us. On Sunday evenings, we're in the Acts of the Apostles, doing a series of sermons we've called Turning the World Upside Down, learning lessons from the early church in the first century for ourselves as a part of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century. And tonight we come to the passage that we've just read together, Acts chapter 8, and the verses from 5 to 25. Acts 8, verses 5 to 25, where we have Luke's narrative of Philip in Samaria, what is commonly known as the revival in Samaria, where we read that Philip preached Christ and multitudes came to faith. Our theme from this passage this evening is when God moves. When God moves. Now we know that God is always at work. He is never idle. But we know too that there are times and seasons when God moves remarkably. What we have recorded for us here in the middle of Acts 8 is one such. There were others in apostolic times. There have been others throughout a church history since even in our own lifetimes in different parts of the world. Now we know uh, that we are not to despise the day of small things. We live at least in our time and place in a day of small things rather than a day of great things. The wheels of the gospel seem to grind uh, slowly. But we are not to despise the day of small things. But at the same time, nor are we to be content with the day of small things. We are to have a holy discontent. We are to long for more, for more of God. Uh, for more of the blessed influence of his Holy Spirit and uh, for him uh, to move in uh, a greater way. Now the Bible is realistic. It is clear that revival isn't a, a silver bullet. It brings great blessings but also a significant uh, challenges. And uh, Philip and the revival in Samaria is something of a case a study. There's a lot going on in tonight's passage. Uh, there are uh, many lines of inquiry uh, that we could uh, pursue. Uh, but let's settle for three big lessons uh, for us to learn. Our theme, when God moves. Number one, when God moves... There are many conversions. Looking at verses 5 to 8. When God moves, 
there are many conversions. Verse 5 tells us that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ uh, to them. And that is immediately followed by the first half of verse 6, which tells us that the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. So you get the picture. Uh, Philip preached Christ, verse 5, and the result of Philip preaching Christ was uh, that multitudes of Samaritans uh, trusted a Christ, a uh, first half of verse 6. God moved, and there were many conversions. But just notice some of the details here. First of all, God moved as Christ was preached. Yes, other things are mentioned, and we'll come on to those in a moment, the miracles and the like. But the headline is, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. That was his main business. And that was and is the church's primary calling. We are to preach Christ as the only hope of the world to preach the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the salvation that he offers as the only hope for each and every one of us. So God moved as Christ was preached. Secondly, God moved as people heard the word and saw its effects. There's an emphasis in the second half of verse 6 upon them both hearing and seeing. They heard the things spoken by Philip and they saw the miracles which he did. They heard and they saw. And it was the hearing and the seeing that together had this dramatic effect of drawing so many of them to faith in the Christ whom Philip preached. They heard. We've touched already on the fact that Philip preached Christ to them. But they also saw, and we're told here that they saw the miracles that Philip did. What miracles are these? Well, we're told, verse 7, there were deliverances, first half of the verse, unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And there were healings, second half of the verse, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So miracles of deliverance, miracles of healing. We know these were the kind of miracles that accompanied Jesus' ministry during his life here upon the earth. And we know too that these were the kind of miracles that accompanied often the ministry of the apostles and those associated with the apostles in the days of the early church. Jesus' miracles were done to authenticate his ministry and to give him a hearing. 
Similarly, the apostles and those associated with them were enabled to work these miracles by the power of God, again, to authenticate their ministries and to give them a hearing. These miracles were common when the gospel went to places where it hadn't been before, where there weren't already Christians testifying to the power of God in their hearts and in their lives. But where the apostles and others like Philip went uh, with the good news of the gospel, breaking new ground for the kingdom, very often their ministries were accompanied uh, by these miracles, by these signs, by uh, these uh, wonders. Over time, these things became increasingly rare. And that was, of course, because conversion is the greatest miracle of all. And all these other miracles, though they are wonderful in in their own right as physical miracles, they they all in different ways point to, to the great spiritual miracle of conversion. When by the grace of God, through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are changed and made new from the inside out. And so the greatest evidence of the power of God, the greatest authentication of the gospel is in the changed lives of ordinary people through faith in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's striking that these people, they heard and they saw. And that time and again is how God works in the hearts and in the lives of of the unsaved. They hear the gospel as it is preached, whether that's more formally from a pulpit or whether it's just gossiped from one individual to another. They hear the gospel, but they don't just hear the gospel, they see the gospel. They see its power in the hearts and in the lives of others. How it has transformed a people that they know or that they have come into contact with. And it's the hearing the gospel and it's the seeing the gospel at work. Seeing it live in the lives of others that has this powerful effect of drawing people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God moved as Christ was preached. God moved as people heard the the word and saw its effects. And thirdly, God moved as new converts rejoiced in him. We are told, verse 8, there was great joy in that city. There in the city of Samaria, there was great joy. These new converts, they rejoiced in their God and and in their Savior. And this joy, it was infectious. There's nothing like the joy of a, a newborn, is there? When a, a, a newborn, when a baby is born, it, it brings great joy to the family and, and to the friends. And, and that joy is infectious. And the same is true when uh, people come to faith in Jesus Christ. When people are born spiritually, when they're born again, there's joy in their hearts. In the hearts of others of the Lord's people. And that joy is, in, is infectious. So we're saying God is always working. And so there are always conversions, ones and twos, here 
and there God is gracious and people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when God moves in an extraordinary, in a remarkable way, as he did in Samaria here in Acts 8, when God moves, there are many conversions. Many people come to faith. Lots of people converted in a short space of time. How that should cause us to long for God to move. To pray for God to move. That we might see such a move of God in our place and in our time. So that's the first big point this evening. When God moves, there are many conversions. Number two. When God moves... There are striking conversions. Looking now at verses 9 to 13. When God moves, there are striking conversions. And uh, the record that we have here of the profession of faith of a character known as Simon the Sorcerer. We're introduced to him in verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced a sorcery. We're told he practiced sorcery in the city. He astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So this man's name is Simon. He's a sorcerer. And he was clearly had been something of a, a big noise there in the city of uh, uh, Samaria. And he wasn't just a man without God. A man who lived a life that was indifferent uh, towards God. But he was someone involved in dark arts. Someone involved in uh, black magic but Luke narrates Simon's story for us in verses 12 and 13 really two big aspects to it first of all he witnessed others being converted and baptized verse 12 but when they that is the multitudes there in Samaria believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ both men and women were baptized. Lots of people were being converted and lots of people were being baptized. Then, verse 13, as a result, Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So this was Simon's testimony he witnessed others being converted and baptized and then he was himself converted and uh, baptized he professed faith he was brought out of his darkness and into Christ's light now we know that every conversion is wonderful we must not fall into the trap 
that as evangelicals we have sometimes fallen into of uh, at least, uh, hy- um, I can't think of the word I want, but metaphorically will that do, uh, drawing up league tables of, of, of conversions, you know, as if uh, there are sort of ordinary conversions of just ordinary people who are converted in ordinary way, and then there are sort of special Premier League conversions of people who've, uh, you know, been notorious uh, uh, and the kind of people that uh, get uh, trotted out to tell their story because, well, they were, they were worse than everybody else and so on. There, there are dangers in that approach where we favour some over others. We remember it takes a work of God's spirit to save anyone. And we should never minimize our need or God's power. We should never minimize our need. In one sense, we are all just as needy as each other. And we should never minimize God's power. That it takes just as much of the power of God to save any one of us as it does any other one of us. So every conversion is wonderful. But without contradicting that, some conversions are especially striking. And that may be for a number of reasons. Let me just give you a few. I'm not saying this list is exhaustive. But just a a few to put a bit of flesh on the bones. It may be due to the, the manifest darkness of an individual's former life. That they were just so godless. They were those who would be regarded by many as the worst of the worst. But God breaks into their hearts and into their lives by his word and and by his spirit and, and he changes them. A striking conversion. It may be Because somebody is converted the very first time they hear the gospel. They've never really heard anything significant of the message of salvation. And the first time they come into contact with it, the first time they hear it, touches them, it changes them, they're transformed. And they go ever so quickly from being altogether ignorant of the gospel to trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. It may be that a conversion is especially striking because somebody has become hardened to the gospel over years or decades. It's not that they're unfamiliar with the gospel, but the gospel has never never moved them. It's always been like water off a duck's back. And instead of every time they hear the gospel seeming to bring them that little bit nearer to the kingdom, it's almost as if every time they hear the gospel, they move that little bit further away. They're gospel hardened. They seem impregnable like rock. They've not been converted yet and people are tempted to think they... They never, ever will be. Hardened over years, over decades, until suddenly God moves and he breaks their hearts of stone and he gives them hearts of flesh and they are 
gloriously saved. A, a conversion may be especially a striking because it's someone who in one way or another has asserted, perhaps for a little while, or perhaps for a long while, I'll never become a Christian. Oh, other people may become Christians, but you can bank on it, you can bank on it, I'll never become a Christian. Even if I were the last person in the world that hadn't become a Christian, I'll never become a Christian, that person says. And yet the Lord saves them. And that person who said, I'll never become a Christian, says, you're never going to guess what happened, what's just happened. But I've become a Christian. And I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus as my Savior and my King. It may be that a conversion is especially striking because maybe for some of the reasons we've mentioned already or, or for others, Somebody seems so very unlikely. Again, it shows our folly, really, doesn't it, to think in terms of people who are likely to be saved and people who are unlikely to be saved because we're not God. But we do tend to think that way, don't we? And some people we think, well, they seem the least likely to be saved. Well, in many ways, Simon the sorcerer, he was so very unlikely. But there were striking conversions in the days of the early church. There have been striking conversions throughout church history since. What would striking conversions look like today? Conversions from the world. People with no a Christian or church background. Conversions of people from particularly godless backgrounds. Whose lifestyles have been so anti-God conversions where there is a radical change a radical change of heart and life in a very short space of time we're not saying every conversion has to look like this but these are some of the things that happen when God moves yes there are many conversions but also we're saying, when God moves, there are striking conversions. But there's something more. Because I promised you three big lessons from our passage uh, tonight. And uh, we're only nine verses in to a 21-verse passage so there needs to be something more. We've said, number one, when God moves, there are many conversions. And number two, when God moves, there are striking conversions. Now, number three, when God moves, there are false conversions. Verses 14 to 25. When God moves, there are false conversions. Because Luke hasn't yet finished narrating for us the story of Simon the Sorcerer. 
the reality as it unfolds in the remaining verses of tonight's passage is that at best he backslides, at worst he apostatizes. He turns his back upon the Lord Jesus Christ and proves that he was never actually converted at all. Scripture seems to leave it hanging. He doesn't tell us precisely. Was Simon the sorcerer a backslider? Who would later be restored? Or was Simon the sorcerer an apostate? Who was never truly converted? Tradition has it in the Christian world that he was the latter. That he was not a backslider, but an apostate. That he was a false professor. That he was somebody who made a profession of faith in Christ and who for a time everyone believed was converted, but who proved ultimately never to have been saved at all. I say scripture leaves it hanging. So there's a sense in which we must leave it hanging too. But one immediate application is this. As Christians we must never entertain backsliding. In terms of well I'm just backsliding. I'm just backsliding. When we grow lukewarm or cold towards the Lord. When we start prioritizing other things rather than him when we start indulging sinful behavior that we know is wrong. We have no license to tell ourselves, I'm just backsliding. I'm just cutting myself a little slack for a while. But I'm still saved. And I'll be back in due course. And nothing, no lasting harm will be done. God's word gives us no license to think like that. Yes, people do backslide who are genuinely converted. We all do in different ways to different degrees at different times. And yes, backsliders are restored. But scripture nowhere advocates backsliding. Scripture always warns us that if we are backsliding then we are on the pathway towards apostasy. We have no right to any assurance. And there is a danger that we prove that we were never converted at all. So Simon the sorcerer, we read verses 9 to 13 and we we chalk him up as a striking conversion. But we read verses 14 to 25 and we have to clarify and we have to say that he is at least potentially a false conversion, a false professor who was never truly converted at all. Now let's be clear what we're not saying. We're not saying that striking conversions are always false conversions. Of course we're not saying that. But let's be clear about what we are saying. What we are saying is that even the most striking of conversions, of seeming conversions, can prove ultimately to be 
were false. The Lord Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry had many false professions. Those who turned their back on him and walked no more with him. The apostles and their associates in the Acts of the Apostles, they too had many false professors. And the church of Christ always has and always will. The danger is, particularly in our own circles, that sometimes we can, we can think there's something wrong if there's ever a false profession. Uh, and we try to come up with a form of church life that avoids there ever being any false professions. Now, Hear me correctly. I'm not saying we go out looking for false professions. I'm not saying we encourage people to believe they're converted when they're not. But the Gospels, the the Acts and the Epistles are clear. That when God moves and there are true conversions, there will almost always be false ones too. Where there is the true, the devil will be there with the false. Where there is the genuine, Satan will have his counterfeit. But let's explore the details a little more of the case of Simon the sorcerer here in verses 14 to 25 of our passage. The Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, verses 14 to 17. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but I do need to deal with this a, a, little, a little bit. Verses 14 to 17, we're told, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So Peter and John come and join Philip and the others, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had, not, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the Samaritans, they received the Holy Spirit. Which begs the question, well didn't they receive the Holy Spirit at conversion? Wasn't a work of the Holy Spirit necessary in their hearts in order for them to be saved at all? And doesn't every true believer have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts by faith? So what's all this about them not having received the Holy Spirit? Well, I believe the answers to those questions, I can't just remember how many questions I asked, but broadly speaking, they're yes, yes, and yes. It did take a work of the Holy Spirit for them to be converted. And the Holy Spirit if they were true believers, was, was dwelling in them. I think there's something different that is being talked about here. This is often referred to as the Samaritan Pentecost. We have in Acts 2 what we call the Day of Pentecost. When uh, there in Jerusalem the Holy Spirit came uh, upon the apostles uh, and great things happened. Now, of course, we don't believe that the Holy Spirit didn't exist before the day of Pentecost. He is the eternal third person of the Trinity. Nor do we believe that the Holy Spirit was idle and doing nothing until the day of Pentecost. He had been at work throughout world history. Nor do we believe that anybody had ever come to faith in God and faith in the Messiah throughout the Old Testament and the early days of the New Testament apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. We believe in all of those things. 
And yet at Pentecost in fulfillment of the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit fell upon his servants in a new, in a special, in a remarkable way. And we see that happening in Jerusalem. And you remember the apostles, they were to be witnesses where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And just as there was a Pentecost in Jerusalem, so I think what we have here is something of a Pentecost in Samaria, which will be followed when we get to it, a few chapters' time, when the gospel goes beyond the Samaritans to the Gentiles by a Gentile Pentecost. That, I believe, is how we're to understand this reference uh, to the Holy Spirit coming. It was a Samaritan Pentecost. But back to, back to Simon the sorcerer. The Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit, verses 14 to 17, with the result that Simon tried to buy spiritual gifts with money, verses 18 and 19. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter, he rebukes him sharply, Verses 20 to 23, we can't stay with all the detail, but he says things like, your money perish with you, verse 20. Your heart is not right in the sight of God, verse 21. Repent of this, your wickedness, verse 22. He describes Simon as being poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity, verse 23. That's strong stuff, isn't it? If you had a pastoral visit and the pastor or one of the elders started talking to you like that, well, it's not the kind of thing that happens every day, is it? Simon asked Peter to pray for him. Verse 24. Some see this positively. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me, arguing that it's a, a sign of a measure of conviction and a desire uh, to, be, to be right. Others of the commentators see this negatively as indicative of the fact that Simon didn't really have a personal relationship with the Lord at all. He didn't know how to pray for himself. He needed others to pray for him. We don't know exactly. But as I say, Scripture leaves Simon hanging. Was he a backslider? Was he an apostate? We don't know, but it's quite possible he was a false convert. There have been con false converts before. There have been false converts since. Time is ebbing away, but what are some reasons why there are false converts when God moves? Let me just highlight three. First of all, people can be carried away by the visible. We don't want to read too much into the passage. But we're told back in verse 13, when Simon believed and was baptized, that he continued with Philip. He was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. It seemed he was fascinated by the, by the, the miracles, particularly, of course. He, he'd been in the dark arts. He'd been in the black magic. He'd had uh, certain powers himself before. And was he carried away with the visible? We're told, verse 18, 
When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He saw the power the apostles had. He thought, I want in on that. I want some of that. Carried away with the visible. Good things can become bad things if they displace the main thing. The main thing is faith in Christ, growing in him, cultivating fellowship with our Savior. The danger is we get carried away by other things. Christian friendship is good. But if that becomes a substitute for a relationship with our Lord, then a good thing has become a bad thing by displacing the main thing. Church gatherings are a wonderful blessing as we gather to worship and we enjoy singing and so on. But if they displace a daily personal walk with God, then good things have become bad things because they have displaced the main thing. Christian service. It's a duty, it's a privilege for the believer to serve the Lord, to busy ourselves in kingdom work. But if that displaces a vibrant relationship with Jesus, then good thing has become a bad thing because it has displaced the main thing. We can be carried away by the visible. Secondly, there can be the neglect of the invisible, which is not just the same point put the other way around. But instead of being carried away by the visible, there can, even without that, there can be the neglect of the invisible. What we might call the inner life, the inner walk. What does Peter say to Simon the sorcerer in verse 22? He says, repent and pray. And why did he have to tell Simon to repent and pray? Well, because Simon hadn't been repenting and he hadn't been praying. And these are key ingredients to a healthy Christian life and to a healthy church life. Daily repentance. Daily prayer. We mustn't neglect the invisible, the inner life, that aspect of our Christianity which others can't see and can't know and can't judge. Carried away by the visible, neglect of the invisible. Do we see in Simon, to a degree, an unhealthy fascination with the spectacular? He was the sort of person who, if he was around, in 21st century evangelicalism, would be always running after the latest gimmick. Not much use for the ordinary means of grace. For the worship and fellowship and service of the local church. We must come to a close. We're thinking about when God moves. When God moves, there are many conversions. When God moves, there are striking conversions. When God moves, there are false conversions. But how we need a move of God in our day and in our time. How's that going to happen? Well, it is a sovereign, a work of God. And we cannot cannot dictate and we cannot presume. But surely first we need to believe that God does move. Second, we need to long for God to move. Third, 
We need to pray that God will move. And when he does, we need to be sure to give him and him alone all the glory. Amen.